So one of the best things about belonging to a church family, in my humble opinion, is that you get to celebrate together when someone gets baptized. So on the screen behind us there is a baptismal service we had a couple of weeks ago. Um, as a church, we went to Knighton Free Church and we um, had the real privilege of baptizing Ethan and Cayman um, a, a few weeks ago. And baptism is this amazing picture of someone dying to their old way of life and without Jesus, they go under the water and they're raised out of the water like they're rising to a new way of life with Jesus as Lord. And it's just a privilege and a joy to, to be part of that as a church family. And traditionally, in a baptismal service, and there's an opportunity for the person or people getting baptized to share the story of how they came to trust in Jesus. That's something called their testimony. And both Ethan and Cayman did that a few weeks ago. But it's, it's really interesting. Nearly always when I talk to people who are getting baptized about sharing their testimony, they nearly always say to me, but my testimony is so boring. It's so uneventful. Now, some people have amazing stories, but a lot of people I chat to going, I just, I just don't have anything really exciting to share. And nearly always, the story they're comparing themselves to is the story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, when Saul, that great persecutor of the church, met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and was utterly transformed. People compare their conversion story with Paul's conversion story, and it just looks so boring and uneventful. I reassure them that no one's conversion story is boring or uneventful because Jesus is involved. But it reveals something. Actually, many Christians, myself included, actually, can have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Paul's conversion story. We sort of love it because it is so dramatic. It's a story of utter transformation. Saul becomes Paul. The great persecutor of the early church becomes the greatest evangelist the early church ever had. He travels the world proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. There's no doubt that Saul met Jesus and was changed. And yet, because it's so dramatic, many Christians often feel intimidated by it. We feel inadequate next to it. My story of faith is just so boring by comparison. Ethan and Cayman both said that to me in the lead up to their baptism. Well, having said all that, the next bit of 1 Timothy we just had read to us, Paul is talking about his story of conversion. But I want us to see this morning that when Paul does that in the Bible, he's not doing that to intimidate us or to make us feel inadequate or even to blow his own trumpet. Look at my amazing story. No, quite the opposite. Paul shares the story of how Jesus saved him to encourage the rest of us. He tells his story to show us just the true extent of the grace and mercy of God to anyone who meets the Lord Jesus. So again, in this bit of 1 Timothy, Paul doesn't share many of the details of what happened on the road to Damascus, because in an important sense, actually the details aren't what's important. What's important is that Paul met Jesus, and Jesus saves sinners. That is what Paul wants us to see. He sort of insists on something here. He basically is telling us, if Jesus could save and transform Paul, Jesus can save and transform anyone. Just let that sink in. Actually, if Jesus can save and transform a man like Paul, he can save 
and transform anyone, including us and including people we know and love who maybe we would love to know Jesus. Actually, Paul doesn't share his story to intimidate us. He shares his story to encourage us with the saving power of Jesus. And so it's worth asking the question, why would Timothy need that sort of encouragement from Paul? And why do we need that sort of encouragement today? Well, we need this encouragement from Paul because it'll be hard to believe that God really can change someone. It can be hard to believe that God really can transform us into people who live out our new identity as members of God's household, his family, the church. Because again, I hope we've only a few weeks into this series, but I hope you're already seeing that, that Paul's got so much to say about the amazing identity Christians have when they trust in Jesus. We are God's households, Paul says. We belong to God. We're his family here on earth. We are loved by God. God makes his home with us and he calls on us to live as his witnesses in the world wherever he has placed us. It's an amazing identity. But what about those times when the reality of our life together falls so far short of that amazing identity? What about the gap between what the gospel says about us and the way we actually live our lives? See, to put it another way, what hope do any of us have of truly living out our identity as God's household in this world? Well, I believe that's the question that Paul wants to answer for Timothy and for the rest of us in this short passage, why we can have real hope for change, hope that we can begin to live out our new identity as God's household, as people who love God, love one another, and love our world, and it's because of who Jesus is. Verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul says that the gospel's not about us and what we bring to the table. The gospel's about Christ Jesus saving us. Jesus coming into the world to save people who cannot save themselves. So instead of getting sort of burdened down by who we are, by our struggles, by our frustrations, Paul is telling Timothy and the rest of us, fix your eyes on Jesus. It's as if he's following the advice of a 19th century Scottish pastor called Robert Murray McShane. He was writing a letter to a discouraged and struggling Christian and he urged him, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Remember, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. Again, the false teachers that Timothy's dealing with, they're making the Christian life about what we do. We saw a bit of that last week. And so so Paul gives this trustworthy saying to Timothy to fight against that. He says salvation isn't about what we do or which parts of the Old Testament law we choose to obey. Salvation is all about what Jesus has done for us. And therefore, the only way, the only hope we have of change, the only hope we have of keeping going and keeping growing in the Christian life is if we have our eyes lifted to and fixed on Christ Jesus. That's what Paul wants us to see in this short passage. So let's look at at these verses together now. Um, Taking the closing verses first, looking at verses 18 to 20. So here Paul's renewing his call 
to Timothy. Again, the reason he's writing is he wants Timothy to restore and protect a church in Ephesus against false teaching and false teachers. And in these verses, Paul's really clear with Timothy. He says, Timothy, remember, the Christian life is a battle. That's verses 18 to 20. The Christian life is a battle. Let me read verse 18 for us again. Timothy, my son, I'm giving this this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Again, there's a lot there, but actually Paul uses two different pictures to describe the Christian life here. First, it's a battle, and second, it's a voyage through stormy waters. See, Paul doesn't hide the reality from Timothy, in large part probably because Timothy's been a believer long enough, he knows the reality himself. Following Jesus in this fallen world is hard. It's a battle, and it doesn't take long for every Christian to bear some of the scars of that battle. It is costly to follow Jesus. It's costly when the people around you think you're crazy for doing so or even hateful and bigoted for doing so. Some people will reject you for your faith. It's costly even in terms of relationships with other Christians because Jesus tells us to forgive and bear with each other even when we let each other down. It's costly. It's costly in terms of time. Loving people the way Jesus loves us takes time and effort. There's always sacrifice involved. It's costly in terms of money. Opening up your life and your home to people costs money. Giving to your local church costs money. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And behind all of that, looking at verse 20, we have a powerful enemy who is out to get us. Paul names him here, Satan, the enemy of God and God's people, the great accuser who loves to lie to us and draw us away from our Father in heaven. And just in case that big picture vision of the Christian life as a battle doesn't hit home long enough, Paul goes on in verse 20 to list some of the real life casualties of that battle. He names two men here, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Again, we don't know much about them, except they were real life named individuals known to Timothy and Paul. I want us to see here actually that it would have been painful for Paul to write these names. And it would have been painful for Timothy to read them because these were men they knew. These were men who used to follow Jesus and are now in terrible danger of shipwrecking their faith. See, the Christian life is a battle and not everyone who professes faith in Jesus will choose to keep fighting that battle. You might not know, I don't know who Hymenaeus or Alexander were. But if you're a Christian sitting here today, there are probably plenty of Hymenaeuses and Alexanders you do know. People who maybe years ago seemed to love Jesus, followed Jesus, encouraged you. And perhaps now, they look like they're nowhere spiritually. We've known that as a church family here at Avenue. I've known that myself. I remember when I was a student, at our Christian Union, a speaker said something that said, not all of you will be following Jesus in 20 years' time. And I looked at my friends going, yeah, we're different. Sadly, some of those friends aren't following Jesus today. Christian life's a battle. Paul reminds us of real-life casualties here. 
because it hurts when we see those casualties fall. There is hope we're going to see in a moment. But Paul doesn't hide the reality from Timothy or from us. And I guess then the big question becomes, well, then what hope do we have in the battle? Timothy's maybe going, well, I'm no different to him and A.S. and Alexander. What hope do I have? What about the Christians I'm meant to be leading? What hope do they have? And that's why Paul in verses 12 to 17 is so emphatic. Timothy, always remember, you were not meant to fight this battle on your own. You cannot voyage through the stormy waters on your own. Come to Jesus and ask him to help you. Depend on him. Fix your eyes on him. Cry out to him. And then Paul just goes on to just list all the different ways that Jesus meets us in our weakness so we can fight the battle. So what does Paul want Timothy and the rest of us to know about Jesus here? The first thing Paul wants Timothy to know and us to know is Jesus gives us strength, verse 12, the strength we need to keep going. So again, you look at verses 12 to 17, I love the way Paul begins and ends this section with thanksgiving. Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who's given me strength. And then verse 17, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Paul is thankful to Jesus in the midst of the battle. And how can Paul be like this? Because he's still amazed that he gets to call Christ Jesus, King Jesus, his Lord. He's still amazed that that King Jesus cares for him and is committed to giving him the strength Paul needs to keep living for Jesus. Because Paul wants Timothy to know neither Paul nor Timothy nor any of us can keep fighting the battle of following Jesus in a fallen world without Jesus strengthening us. And so why would verse 12 be such an encouragement to Timothy? Well, because Paul's clear. The same Jesus who has strengthened Paul will strengthen Timothy if he asks him to, will strengthen us if we ask him to. I want to say this verse, verse 12, has just been really precious to me, even this past week. It's been one of those weeks where you maybe know what it feels like. You're just running to stand still. Just, just you can't quite hit all the targets and the demands you feel that are on you. If you want me to go into detail, I, I can tell you. <laughs> you can talk to me afterwards. But I want to say against that backdrop of a week where I often felt overwhelmed, God in his kindness forced me to spend time listening to verse 12 here. That Jesus strengthens us when we cannot keep going on our own. That we can thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he gives us the strength that we need. Again, in a similar time of pressure a few years ago, it just, I was really struck as if just a question in my mind, Richard, how bad is it going to take? How bad is it going to get, sorry, for me to pray? How far beyond my own resources am I going to get to before I actually bow my knees and go, Lord Jesus, I can't do this. Please strengthen me. Paul says, it's a battle, Timothy, but you can thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he gives you strength to fight the battle. Paul wants Timothy and the rest of us to know you can't make it on your own and you were never intended to. But actually Jesus has more than enough strength for you, for me, for all of us 
if we cry out to him and ask him, keep me going, Lord. Keep me fighting. Keep me trusting in you. Jesus gives us strength, the strength that we need. Jesus also shows us mercy, verses 13 and 16. Again, you might have seen it when the passage read out. Paul repeats himself here. Verse 13 and 16, he's used the same phrase, I was shown mercy. And again, we need to get some of the awe behind that. Paul's going, I was shown mercy. It's maybe, you almost imagine he maybe chuckles when he says it or he just weeps when he says it. I don't know, but he's still never quite gotten over the fact that he, Paul, the great persecutor of the church, was shown mercy by the God of grace. What does it mean to show someone mercy? It means you don't give them what they deserve. It means they, they knock over the wall of your house with, you, with your, their car and you say, don't worry about it. I'm not going to ask you to pay for it. Happened to me and Lil on our first date. You can ask her later. You don't get what you deserve. That's what mercy means. And that's what Paul has received from Jesus. Paul deserved God's judgment. He's under no illusions about that. Look at the way he describes himself in verse 13. He says, I was a blasphemer. Again, if you told Saul before the road to Damascus, you're a blasphemer, he would have been horrified, shocked. I'm a good and godly man, but he was personally rejecting the Son of God by persecuting the church. He was saying, I don't need this Jesus. I've got the law. I'm a Pharisee. I don't need that. He was treating Jesus with contempt. He was blaspheming. He was a persecutor. Remember the words the risen Jesus says to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He wasn't just persecuting Christians, he was persecuting Jesus. And he was a violent man, he says. He says he supported the killing of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He breathed out murderous threats against Christians, we're told in Acts 9. See, in many ways, Paul lists this because he says, actually, I exceeded even the false teachers in Ephesus in my rejection of God. Those false teachers I'm telling you to guard against Timothy. Actually, I was worse than them. I'm not a better man than those false teachers, Timothy. And neither are you, Timothy. But I was shown mercy. That's what made the difference. And he was shown grace as well. Verse 14. If mercy is we don't get what we do deserve, grace is we get what we don't deserve. You knock over the wall, instead of not just having to pay for it, they give you two grand. That didn't happen on Lily and my first date. But you can ask us about it. But yet God gives us what we don't deserve. He actively blesses us when what we do deserve is judgment. He doesn't just say, I'm just not going to punish you. He says, instead of not just punishing you, that's not enough for me. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to walk with you and fight alongside you every day of your life. And his beautiful imagery, Paul uses in verse 14. He says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. It's as if Paul's picturing himself as a man stranded in a, in a dry, arid desert. His, his lips are cracked. His skin is cracked from the sun. And suddenly just a waterfall opens over his head. Just refreshing him, bringing him to life, satisfying his thirst. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, he says. And why does he tell Timothy that? Well, in part because he can't quite get over it. He's praising Jesus for how he's treated him, but also he's encouraging Timothy. That grace pours out abundantly. It will not run dry, Timothy. 
There really is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. Jesus will meet every one of your needs by his grace, he says. So stick with him. Stick with the waterfall of the gospel in this dry land because you need the grace only Jesus can give. And again, I hope we're seeing in this picture that that Paul paints of Jesus. Jesus is committed to changing us just as he changed Paul. Jesus, in verse 14, he teaches us faith and love, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. When, When Jesus saves someone, he's not finished with them there. He's not going, right, I'm going to get you over the finish line to heaven. No, he gets to work on us. He wants to teach us faith. That means the right relationship with God. If you like the horizontal part of the Christian life, he wants to teach us to love God, to trust him. And he wants to teach us love. That's the, that's the, was that, did I say vertical? That's vertical is God. Horizontal is one another. Bear with me. But love is to treat one another the way Jesus treats us. Jesus is committed to teaching us faith and love if we come to him. He wants to restore the image of God in us that is broken by sin so that we are people who finally learn what it means to love God the way we're created to, to love people the way we were created to. When Jesus saves someone, he's only begun the transforming work of love he wants to do in us. And that transforming work of love is all under the title of salvation. That's what the verse 15 summary of the gospel tells us, that Jesus saves sinners. Here is a trustworthy saying, says Paul, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul wants to remind us of a glorious truth. He says, well, who are the sort of people Jesus is interested in? Who are the sort of people Jesus is committed to saving? Are they good people? Are they religious people? Are they sorted people? Are they strong people? Are they resilient people? No, says Paul. They are sinners. And what is a sinner? According to the Bible, a sinner is someone who knows they have messed up. He's someone who knows they need help. She is someone who knows they are weak. A sinner is someone who says, I don't love God the way I should, and I don't love the people around me the way I should. A sinner is someone who says, I am sick, and I need a doctor. A sinner is someone who is weary and burdened in this world. A sinner is someone who knows they cannot save themselves. And if any of those descriptions resonate with you, if any of those think that feels a bit like me, then Paul has astonishing good news for us. You're the reason Jesus came into the world. You're the reason Jesus went to the cross to save you. And the flip side of that, if we refuse that title of sinner, if we reject it and say, that's not me, how dare you say that, Paul? Let me be as clear as I can. You will miss out on the grace of Jesus that Paul is praising here. You remain under God's wrath and one day you will meet God. You don't get the option on whether or not you meet God. The option is, are you gonna meet God when you're ready or when you're unprepared to? 
Jesus came to save sinners. That's a name we have to learn to embrace. We kind of don't like it. We want to say, no, that's not me. But it's part of the deal. A sinner is someone who can't save themselves. And they look to Jesus to do that. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Again, it's, why does Paul say that? Is he exaggerating for effect? Does he genuinely believe he is the worst person that ever lived? It's hard to understand it, but whatever the reason, it's all part of the encouragement Paul wants to give Timothy and us. Again, we said at the beginning, Paul is convinced if Jesus can save and transform him, Jesus can save and transform anyone. And just think how encouraging that would be for Timothy to hear. Jesus can save and transform Timothy into the leader he needs to be to sort out this messy situation in Ephesus. Jesus has the power to save and transform the false teachers in Ephesus so that they change their ways. Jesus has the power to save and transform people like Hymenaeus and Alexander. People who are shipwrecking their faith, but maybe Jesus can change them. Their story isn't over yet. And why is Paul so confident that we can trust Jesus in the middle of our story? Well, finally, because Jesus is patient with us, verse 16. He's patient with us. Again, look at verse 16 for a moment. Again, if you were writing this letter, how would you finish the sentence in verse 16. Let me read, us, read it for us. But for that very reason, Paul writes, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense, what? We might say power or mercy or love or grace. And all those things are true. But Paul zeroes in on Jesus' patience. Jesus is patient with us when we trust in him. Like God the Father, he's slow to anger and he's abounding in love. Jesus is patient with us. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't walk away from us. He doesn't abandon us when we, if we were him, we would would have left years ago. No, Jesus is patient with us. By contrast, we're the impatient ones. We're impatient with the people around us. We're easily annoyed or frustrated. We give up on people when they let us down. We get irritated by people. We, we, someone tells, them their pro, tells us their problems. We say, oh, well, I'll, I can, I'll give you some good advice. Then a week later, they're still struggling. I, didn't I tell you last week how to deal with that? We get so impatient with people. And of course, we get impatient with ourselves. We kind of go, surely I would know by now not to mess up that way. Surely I'm, I should be stronger by now in the faith. Why am I not fixed already? But you see, we're the impatient ones. Paul says Jesus is a, is a savior of immense patience. He knows it takes time to really change someone from someone who loves themselves to someone who loves God. He knows it takes time to mature and grow a church into people who live out that identity of God's household. Jesus is patient with us. And he asks us to trust his timings for our life individually and our life together as a church. Because he's not walking away. He's not giving up on you or me. He is patient with us. So we've covered a huge amount of ground there. 
Um, I think Paul is just kind of stacking up these descriptions of who Jesus is. And I guess the question as we finish really is, what should our response be to the Jesus we meet in 1 Timothy 1? And if we're in any doubt, Paul kind of gives us a very strong hint in verse 17. He says the response is, worship him. The response is worship him. Verse 17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See, why does Timothy need to see Jesus here? Why do we need to see Jesus? Because the Christian life is hard. It's a battle. And the only way we can keep going in following Jesus is if we know him. We know just how deeply he loves us and how deeply committed he is to us. That's why Paul ends this section of the letter in worship to Jesus. And that's what he calls on us to do too. So I guess the question for you today is, what would it look like for me to worship Jesus this week? And in one sense, that is not a question I can answer for you. It looks different from individual people. It depends on your situation in life, the battles you are facing, the people God is calling you to love and serve. But I want to suggest there is one way of worshiping Jesus that applies to every single one of us. And it's this. We worship Jesus. You and I can do it together by going to Jesus and asking him for help. You can worship Jesus this week with that very simple step of going to Jesus and asking him for help. And that sounds ludicrously simple, but in my experience, it's often the last thing we do. We struggle on, on our own. We think we can fix things and come up with solutions without asking Jesus for help. We hide our struggles from Jesus and from one another because we think, well, maybe maybe he doesn't care or maybe he can't help. But that's why we need our eyes open to the Jesus that Paul opens Timothy's eyes to here. It is a powerful act of worship of Jesus by admitting we cannot do it on our own by humbling ourselves and asking Jesus to help us. I love the way the recent book, Gentle and Lowly, puts it. He says, we worship Jesus by taking him at his word and responding to his invitation. And what is Jesus' invitation? It's in Matthew 11. Let me read this for us. Come to me, says Jesus. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. How do we worship Jesus individually and corporately as a church? We take him at his word. We go to him and we ask him for help. Let me pray for us as we finish. Let's pray. Father God, there is so much in this passage. There's so many different pictures of Jesus, different angles to look at him. 
Lord, I pray in your mercy you would help each one of us to perhaps fix on that one image that speaks primarily to us right now. Whether it is Jesus' patience, Jesus giving us strength, Jesus' mercy, Jesus teaching us faith and love. Father God, we need our eyes open to see Jesus more clearly, whether we admit that or not. So Lord, help us to hear your voice and help us this week to worship your son Jesus by going to him, by admitting we need his help and asking him for that help. Lord God, that frightens us. If we're honest, perhaps we're scared that if we ask for help, maybe Jesus won't deliver. Maybe Jesus won't be able to help us. But Father, by your spirit working in our lives, would you strengthen our faith? And would you help us to know your presence with us, your power available in us, and the fact that we never fight the battles we fight on our own? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came into the world to save people like me, to save people like everyone here. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.